Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the admonition to walk a mile in someone else's shoes before judging them derives from Native American wisdom and the 1895 poem, Judge Softly, by Mary T. Lathrop. The opening stanza is, Pray, don't find fault with the man that limps or stumbles along the road, unless you have worn the moccasins he wears, or stumbled beneath the same load. Often enough, many of us fail to display the empathy called for in Lathrop's poem. When it comes to our treatment of people with disabilities, writer Elsa Hunison wants to address that. In her new book, Being Seen, one deaf-blind woman's fight to end ableism, Hunison, known for her speculative fiction, takes a turn at memoir and cultural critique. As the subtitle suggests, Hunison identifies as deaf-blind. She has partial vision in one eye, needs a cane or guide dog to walk, and uses bilateral hearing aids. In being seen, she describes how her parents thought it best to raise her as non-disabled. In school, she attended classes without accommodations or services for the disabled. In effect, she was made to conform to an abled world that stigmatized her disabilities. Unison writes that her parents' good intentions backfired, ultimately leading to abusive experiences. She writes, quote, I have become an expert at lying for abled comfort, and it is exhausting. I've been trying to unlearn it, unquote. Ableism is defined as discrimination and social prejudice against people with disabilities and or people who are perceived to be disabled. Unison writes that, quote, if you are inspired to do anything by this book, it should be the work of dismantling the ableist system we live in." Unquote. Elsa Hunison is a Hugo, Aurora, and British Fantasy Award winner. In this episode, she talks about being seen with writer Annalee Newitz. Newitz is the author of the Lambda Literary Award-winning novels The Future of Another Timeline, and Autonomous, and the nonfiction work Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. The Seattle Public Library and the Elliott Bay Book Company presented their conversation on November 4th. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Here, the Elliott Bay Book Company's Karen Maeda Alman introduces the event. Elsa Hunasa is a seven-time Hugo Award finalist. She's a deaf-blind speculative fiction and also nonfiction writer, pretty recently reached Seattle. She's been published in CNN Opinion, the Boston Globe, Metro UK, and Tour. She's been a finalist for the Best Fan Writer and Best Semi-Pro Zine Hugo Awards, a winner of the D. Franklin Defying Doomsday Award, 
and a finalist for the Best Game Writing Nebula Award. As an activist for disability rights, she's worked with New Jersey 11th for Change and the New York Disability Pride Parade. And as an educator, media studies professor and critic and public speaker, she has presented work at the University of Chicago and the Henry Art Gallery. She's taught with Clarion West and also writing the other. And you'll also um, see her at science fiction conventions where she also teaches. On the internet these days, she's known as Snark Bat. She's worked as an editor for Fireside Quarterly, Uncanny Magazine, and as co-guest editor of Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction. She also founded and wrote the popular blog, Feminist Sonar. But many of us first met Seattle shortly after she moved back here to Seattle, when she visited us to sign copies and participate in virtual events for the Disability Visibility Anthology, edited by Alice Wong, to which Elsa contributed an essay. This groundbreaking anthology is one of the finest collections of writing I've seen. And we heard when we heard that a book of her own was coming, I knew that we wanted to help bring this book out into the world. And it is a stunner. So it's called Being Seen, One Deafblind Woman's Fight to End Ableism. And it was published about a week ago by Simon and & Schuster. And this is one of her, this is her first public event. She has much to teach us about her life at the intersection of blindness and sight, hearing and deafness, and also about life as a second generation queer activist. She'll appear in conversation with Annalie Newitz, also a science fiction and nonfiction writer. They are the author most recently of Four, of Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, and the novels The Future of Another Timeline, and also the Lambda Literary Award winner, Autonomous. Their science journalism has appeared in the New York Times, and they have a monthly com column in The New Scientist. And they're also the co-host of the Hugo Award-winning podcast, Our Opinions Are Correct. Previously, they were the founder of io9, and, and they served as editor-in-chief of Gizmodo. So I'd like to invite our speakers into our virtual space. Thank you. Thank you. Thank um, you so much for the introduction. Yeah, that was uh, really fantastic. And I'm super happy to be here and able to ask Elsa a bunch of questions about an incredible book. So congrats on the amazing book and having your launch party now here. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's really lovely to have you. And um, I really wanted to have conversations with non-disabled people about this book because that's the audience. So often disabled people are in conversation with other disabled people and the conversations we have with non-disabled people are really fraught. So part of what I want to do is be able to show people how it can be done right. Awesome. Okay. I'm going to endeavor to do it right. Um, so I trust you. That's why you're here. <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm doing it already. Um, so I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the process of writing a work that is both memoir and also a work of social criticism. And you've kind of blended them together really well here. It's really a great, um, kind of connection between the two forms. And one of the things that really struck me about the format was um, kind of going back to this early chapter you have about how disability memoirs are always centered on the idea of being inspirational. Um, you know, I always think of that movie, My Left Foot, where everyone is supposed to be like, wow, he did it. 
Um, and your memoir is totally going against that grain. And I wonder if you can talk about that idea of rejecting being inspirational. There's a moment literally in the first chapter where I tell the reader, if, if you're reading this for inspiration, you, this that's not the idea. Please don't. If it's going to inspire you to do anything, do some social activism of your own. Okay, thanks, bye. Uh, but I... I wanted to talk about what it was really like because so often it's not just that it's an inspirational story about, hey, Eric Weilenheimer went and climbed Everest, but it also doesn't show you the day-to-day reality. It doesn't make you think about what it's like to really go through every day with a disability. It gives you a snapshot of a really exciting moment in a disabled person's life. And it doesn't really get into how the sausage is made. (laughs) (laughs) And so people to have to sit with the discomfort of that reality, because the reality is being disabled is hard. It's not easy. And um, so I don't want you to find that inspiring because it's just how my life is. But I want people to get it so that the world can change. What is the importance of uh, bringing in both um, aspects of your own experience, but also talking about, um, you know, uh, science fiction stories, talking about, you know, representations in media? Like, why did you want to put those two things together? So something that everybody I talk to who's non-disabled says um, is often they're like, you're the only disabled person I've ever met or you're the only deafblind person I've ever met, or you're the only blind person or deaf person, but they have seen Daredevil, or they have seen In the Dark, or they did watch the Al Pacino movie where he blind and he learned how to tango. Mm -hmm. They never actually say the name of the movie, they just use that descriptor. (laughs) And what I've realized is that people learn about disability through what they see on TV or in books, because we have been separated out institutionalization isn't entirely over yet. Maybe we're not putting disabled people into big homes where we're sort of shuttered away, but we still have a lot of disabled kids in special education classes. And those classes don't necessarily get mixed with other elementary school kids. So you may never meet a disabled kid in your entire school education, but you may be seeing them on TV. (laughs) And so if that's how you're learning about what disability looks like, That's the only way to really bat that perception is to actually talk about those representations and put them in parallel with reality. Yeah, that's super interesting. There's a a kind of a paradox in this book that you deal with a lot. Um, I mean, the title is Being Seen, um, but one of the other issues is being not seen. Um, And then there's also the issue, and this is where I think it gets really complicated and interesting, is there's this sort of paradox of being seen, but not for what you really are. Um, And I think that's true for uh, lots of disabled people, but also it's true, and you point this out, you know, it's true for people who've been marginalized in other ways. Um, And so I wonder if you could talk about, you, you describe this as being at the other end of the abled gaze. And you talk about getting that idea from Laura Mulvey, a feminist critic who talks about the male gaze. 
Um, and I wonder if you could just talk about the abled gaze. What is that gaze doing? I mean, obviously it is watching, you know, Daredevil and it's watching Day of the Triffids and things like that. Um, yeah. I mean, the abled gaze really started, the, the abled gaze really started with sideshows. If we want to talk about specifically the American abled gaze, it begins with the concept of it being okay to put disabled bodies literally on display. And you pay a certain amount of money to go and look at that disabled body. And there is a lot of intersection there with Black people and Indigenous people, because there were a lot of people who were on the sideshow circuit were coming from non-white communities. So there's an element of racism there too. And if we start from, it's okay to look at these bodies for entertainment or for edutainment, because they often made it sound like it was for science. Right. You're already encouraging people to look at disabled bodies in a different way from able bodies. Then we get even further into that. There was, I bring this up very briefly in the book. There is a concept called ugly laws, which existed in the late 19th century through to the early 20th. Ugly laws were designed to keep disabled people off of the street because we were too ugly to be seen. So, again, so literally a law against not meeting expectations about beauty. Yep. Too ugly to be on the street, going to have to get rid of you. You can't be out during these hours. People were fined for being disabled and just out in public. Um, a lot of one of the more rigorous ones was in Chicago, I think, in the 1890s. Uh, there's an entire book about this called The Ugly Laws, which you can read if you're interested in a horrifying book to read. Um, it's fascinating, but painful. Uh, but th that's another sort of layer here is that we had these laws. We also have a history of institutionalization. My own parents were told by my pediatrician in 1985 or 86 that they should have another one and put me in an institution because I was deafblind. So that's like within the last 36 years, people were being told, you can just another one, put that one away. We're not used to seeing disabled bodies unless they are objects. So able-bodied people are constantly looking at disabled people from a distance at a remove as objects. And that objectification is rooted in scientific oddity and in, alien, in sort of almost alienation and fear. Yeah, I mean, this gets into one of the other really complicated issues in your book, which is you talk about passing um, and also coming out. Um, and how, how that's made your life different in some ways from other disabled folks, but also actually is part of the experience of being disabled, like sometimes passing as able-bodied. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about that and the importance of maybe not passing. Yeah, I mean, I know so many disabled people who feel like they pass and it doesn't help them. Like people who are invisibly disabled but have chronic illness, if they have a handicapped parking permit and they get out of their car and they're not using a cane or a wheelchair, they end up getting really nasty looks from non-disabled people who are, are what to call the disability police. <laughs> a cab, all the way across the board, it doesn't matter what kind of 
cop you are. If you're a disability cop, you're still a cop, a cab. Um, but it, the idea of sort of policing disability is ingrained there. It's like, I can see you. You don't pass the sniff test for what I think is disability. Therefore, I'm going to police your body. So I'm a blind person. I use a white cane. I wear hearing aids, but I don't wear sunglasses. And it frequently happens that I will be walking around without sunglasses on using my white cane, or I look at my phone and people will be like, you're not really blind. And sometimes those interactions are really scary because people will really aggressive about it. They will tell me, oh, you're not really blind. You shouldn't have a cane. What do you mean you're blind? Like, tell me how you're blind. And it's like, one, it's none of business. <laughs> I don't know you. You are some rando on the corner of 23rd and Union. Go away. But also it, it again sort of makes non-disabled people the experts on what disability looks like. Yeah, I'm always amazed at what people feel free to say to you on the street about not just you, but many of us about how we look, you know, it's just like, okay, how about just a howdy do or, you know, tip of the hat, uh, you know, I don't need your feedback on my outfit. Um, so speaking of getting feedback that we don't want from other people, um, I wanted to talk to you about science fiction a little bit. Both of us are giant science fiction mm -hmm. nerds. Um, and you have this really great section. I mean, you talk about it throughout the book, um, but there's this moment where you're like, let's talk about Star Wars. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, because I was thinking about Star Trek. And then, you know, because they have there's Jordy who has his um, kind of augmentations. But Star Wars is the one that you really kind of put your finger on as a place where we see disability, but we also see all of these problems around it. So um, I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about like what's screwed up about Star Wars. Oh boy, this is where <laughs> I'm going to get into a lot of trouble. I mean, I, I knew, I, I knew that when I wrote about Star Wars, the fan people were going to come for me and it's fine. <laughs> the thing is, I love Star Wars. It's really fun. There are people with lightsabers and it's great. And I love Yoda. He's my favorite Muppet. But also Star Wars is ableist as fuck. <laughs> like <laughs> little kids learn the, the rebreather sound from Darth Vader. Darth Vader is the scariest character in Star Wars. Darth Vader can look at you and choke you with his bare hands without actually touching you. Actually, they're not bare. He's wearing giant metal hand, co hand coverings, but, but still. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have to touch you to kill you. And he has this like breathy voice. And that sound is what kids then associate with the sound of somebody using, say, an air tank. You know who uses an air tank? <laughs> Alice Wong uses an air tank. Alice Wong is one of the most generous, kind, delightful human beings I've ever met in my life. And the sound for breathing I have a feeling sometimes freaks out little kids because they've seen Star Wars. Another example is um, Chirrut Imwe, who is not a bad guy. He's a hero. He's a blind character who just so happens to have the magical superpower trope so hard that he shoots things out of the sky without seeing them with his staff because mm -hmm. he has the force. <laughs> I love these movies and also they just, I can't 
not see the ableism. I can't not see the eugenics. I can't not see that like disabled bodies are being used as shorthand. Every single evil emperor in the Star Wars universe has spatial disfigurements of some kind or another. So Star Wars has an ableism problem across the board. Doesn't mean I don't love it because I, as a media critic, love problematic things. I just have had to learn how to love problematic things. Yeah, it sounds like uh, Star Wars is still stuck in the era of ugly laws in a certain sense. You know, it's just sort of bringing it up to date and putting it in a fantasy context. Um, How do we, so how do you want to see um, yourself and other writers and creators integrating disability into stories in a way that doesn't feel like it's the able, the able or, you know, the the ableizing gaze, it's not like, you know, the ugly laws, like how do we do that? Just fix everything. I mean, I, <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, like fix publishing. That's my magic wand. Um, I mean, I think we actually have to start with creating space for disabled creators. Like I want publishing to publish more work by disabled people. I want Hollywood to start bringing not a disabled people into their writer's room. Because right now we don't have enough of those stories being published or being taken up and sort of put out into the world. Um, And we need them because the people who are able to tell those stories the best are disabled people. We know what we've been hungering for. And so that's kind of the first step. But the other thing is that we have to actually listen to disabled people. It's totally fine for non-disabled people to write disabled characters. Now, that's different from writing disabled stories. I do a lot of sensitivity reading um, as part of my freelance work. And 90% of the time, non-disabled authors will send me their book. And I will be like, this is great, except that you're telling a disabled story. You are talking about what it's like to acquire deafness when you have not experienced that and this is your main character and it is all about the disability. Mm-hmm. Try again. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I think we need to start is with listening to disabled people about telling our own stories, but also in, you know, listening to disabled people and saying, please don't tell our stories for us. Yeah, one of the um, comments that you make in this book that I thought was so interesting as a science fiction writer was you said, I don't want to have, you know, futures where disability is solved, um, the kind of, you know, Jordy LaForge problem from uh, Star Trek, where he has like a magical hairband that makes him better than sighted, um, you know, and then um, you were like, look, sure, maybe we will develop therapies for some of the things that in our world cause disabilities, but there's always going to be more disabilities. There's always going to be disabilities that develop in the future. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that and sort of speculate about what that might mean and how we could fit that into storytelling. I think one of the favorite panels that I've ever been on uh, was a disability in the future panel at Worldcon two, three years ago with Ada Palmer, who is a brilliant science fiction novelist. She's also disabled. And she and I spent about 10 minutes on that panel coming up with disabilities that could exist in the future that don't exist now. 
This included things like having your brain not be able to connect to a neural network. What if you just, what if your body just can't handle it? And everybody else in the world has the ability to hack into a system, but your brain is like, meh, no thanks. Or what if you overloaded your circuits? What, what if you literally blew the circuits on your cyberpunk augmentations and you can't actually turn them on ever again? Does that make you disabled? It might, if it is a world that relies on them. Here's another one. This is actually one that I think is already real. How many people listening right now get motion sick? Please imagine what happens if you need to go into space to evacuate Earth during a climate emergency. Your inability to deal with weightlessness is now a disability. Yeah, that's so great. I mean, I'm, I was about to say that's so great because it's really creative, but of course it's, <laughs> it's like, wow, awesome. Um, it just made me think about, um, there's a, a new Star Trek series called Lower Decks that has a character who has a brain implant. And there's a great moment. Of course, they don't talk about it in the language of disability at all, but there's a great moment where he's, um, I mean, he has a lot of problems with his implant. It gets like erased and he care, you know, he overloads it with too many memories, but there's one moment where he's getting error messages and he's trying to do something and error messages keep popping up in his vision. And he keeps saying, oh no, this isn't going to be a problem. I'll be able to keep doing my work. It's not a big deal. And then it shows his vision and it's just like all these error messages and like all of the people around him are just in this like little kind of aura around it. So that's a great, I think that's another good example of maybe some of what we're talking about here. Um, well, and it's funny because I think a lot of disability representation that gets it right is often not labeled disability representation. Like that's great disability rap, but now I'm like, yes, we want it. We're claiming it for our own. Yes, one of us. Good. us. <laughs> that's also one of us. I talk about this in the book, but she is disabled in the books. She identifies as disabled because of her telepathy and they took it out of the TV, out of the TV show. And I was really mad about it because Sookie Sackhouse is disabled. That was one of the biggest TV shows of the mid-aughts and we did not get that representation explicitly. Yeah. I still think we got it sort of subtextually because she cannot hold down a job that is not as a waitress because it's too much to deal with the thoughts of other people around her all day. That sounds like a mega case of ADHD to me. Yeah. Although you have to wonder, like, isn't she being exposed to like the worst negative thoughts, like being a service worker? <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, that's interesting. I didn't realize that they'd taken that out, but that does fit with your thesis that disability is constantly being erased. Um, so I wanted to talk to you before we, um, you know, break for questions from the audience. Um, but let's talk about the future because um, you've thought about this a lot, both as a critic and as a fiction writer. Um, and I'm wondering, tell us a little bit about when you think about the future and you aren't in a dystopian mood, you're thinking about a future where things are better. Um, what do you think would have to happen in the world to make disabled people more comfortable, to make things more um, accessible? What would you like to see change, even if it's just in Seattle itself? Sure. Uh, in a hundred years, we will have socialized medicine. That's the first one. These disabled people are profoundly disenfranchised by the medical system as it currently stands. 
the insurance companies don't want to pay for adaptive aids like wheelchairs or hearing aids. But society seems to think that those are necessary for us to function. But insurance seems to think they're not. So it's kind of this weird paradox of who is going to pay for the $26,000 wheelchair? Um, And you hope it's not you. Uh, Infrastructure, just generally. Our buildings are not built for disabled people. Our housing is not built for disabled people. Trying to find an accessible apartment in Seattle is a nightmare especially because if you're a wheelchair user and your apartment building is on a hill, good luck. So I imagine that's a problem in San Francisco too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's things that are literally about changing the structure of the world because the world currently doesn't think about us. You You go to New York city and this is actually something that was really interesting. I was in New York a couple of weeks ago and Something had changed in the two years since I had been there. We went from there being no announcements about the accessible subway stations to there actually being announcements. Now, when you're on the subway, there is an announcement on the train that says this is an accessible station. Now, there are still only what I think it's something like 70 accessible stations in New York City out of 126. But the point stands that they're now telling people this is an accessible station. You can get off of this train at this station and use a lift and you'll be fine instead of being trapped in some hellhole because you can't get out with the chair. And the, and the one train isn't coming for another 40 minutes. Um, so it's things like that, that just change even being able to go places and do things. Um, it's the idea that adaptive aids won't, cost as much or be as hard to get. Um, One of the questions I get most often from people is why can't AirPods be hearing aids? And it's a fair question. They look like hearing aids. They're effectively the same sort of thing, but different hearing kinds of hearing loss require different tools. So my ears do better with a soft plastic mold in my ear rather than a hard plastic shell that's just how the sound works for me. So you would have to be able to get something that's custom made. But the point is, there are some kinds of hearing loss that could be treated with over-the-counter hearing aids. You just walk into Costco, buy a set of hearing aids, that would be great. That's starting to show up. They're currently fighting for for people to be able to get over-the-counter hearing aids right now. What if you could do that with a wheelchair? Like, that's the question that I have is how do we start getting more access to support? Um, I also think that work work from home would be just standard. Nobody would have to go into an office. You would be able to get captioning for every meeting that you ever had. You would never have to deal with asking if there was going to be an interpreter. So that's the kind of stuff that, that I think would change a lot. I love your utopia, especially that you just started straight up with like, oh, and of course we'll have socialized medicine. <laughs> Step one. Um, and actually you talk I mean, a lot. Go ahead. It's just the right way to go. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. You have this um, great uh, phrase in the book where you talk about diagnosis capitalism. Um, can you talk a bit, a bit about that? Cause there's a lot of ways that I think able-bodied people don't understand how the healthcare system treats disabled people. 
So diagnosis capitalism is the idea that fundamentally capitalism benefits from giving people diagnoses because you make money on people having labels. So you're blind. We, have, we, we now have ways to fix you, to make you a productive member of society, go us. You have ADHD, we have meds to fix you and make you a more productive member of society, go us. But it's also about the fact that when you start having a diagnosis, they have the tools to make you effective. The industrial revolution is more or less where a lot of disability scholars think that the concept of disability for the modern era came from. And it's because all of the workers need to be able to work in the same way in order to be productive. There's that nasty little word again. Productivity is a pernicious lie. And the way that it attacks us in terms of being able to rest, in terms of being, being able to take care of our bodies, is a major component of why disability is so affected by the capitalist model. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I wonder if uh, I wanted to, I want to ask you just one more um, question and then we're going to. I know you wanted to talk about snark too. <laughs> I do. I was going to say, I wanted to talk about snark. Um, so you, I mean, this is kind of going back to a writerly question, which is why is snark so important? Like talk about that tone and how that fits into your project. Oh, I love this question. <laughs> so so much <laughs> I saved it um, for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The cookie. so I love snark I love snark because it allows me to get the spikes out disabled women are not encouraged to be spiky we are encouraged to be feminine and cooperative and frankly shy and easy to get along with they, they really people would prefer it if we sat down folded our hands and were very quiet snark lets me be funny while shoving the knife in <laughs> it takes a little bit of the edge away so that people don't always notice that i'm using a scalpel and then they do notice that I'm using a scalpel and ow, it hurts, but it's also really funny. Um, it's also just who I am. I, I could not write a book about my existence without being snarky. Um, I am, I'm sitting in a room with somebody I've known for 18 years and she basically just started to like crack up when we started talking about snark because this is just how I've always been. Um, <laughs> No, no one, no one could imagine me writing a book at all without Snark. I'm physically incapable. <laughs> <laughs> it's a superpower. Um, but it is a tool and I'm, I'm yeah. using it really deliberately in the book to make people just, just that little bit of open to, to being kicked around. <laughs> Kicked around and then also kind of learning a new way to think about the topic. You know, I think that's part of it. It's a, it's, it's funny because it's, it is spiky, but it is also inviting at the same time. I think that's part of the humor is, is going into making it more inviting. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, the thing I wanted, I wanted people to feel like they were at the same t table with me. Yeah. Which 
again, comes back to you can't be sitting and having a drink with me unless if you know that I'm snarky. <laughs> I think you've succeeded having sat at a table and had a drink with you. Like I definitely felt it. <laughs> um, so um, I'm going to ask a couple of um, audience questions. Um, first of all, Elise asks, um, how would socialized medicine make labeling less important? Because we were talking about the kind of labeling under uh, diagnosis capitalism. So how would socialized medicine change that? That's an interesting question. I don't know if that would change it because the medical system still really likes labeling people. And I think the medical system is always going to be fundamentally focused on making people functional in a traditional sense, even if we have socialized medicine, because at least in America, we also still have a capitalist system and work ethic. So it'll be a little bit harder to untangle diagnosis capitalism from American culture. Um, but that's tricky. I, I don't think that it's impossible, but I think that we would have to change a lot about the way that we think about disabled bodies and the way that we think about productivity. Because in addition to socialized medicine, in order for diagnosis capitalism to not affect us and to not need those labels, we would also need to not work. Like there are disabled people who would need to just not work. They would need to have housing that was available to them and care. And while that care might come from socialized medicine, I don't know that the housing would. So it, that would take a total societal overhaul. Yeah, um, I do. I think that that is an interesting point, though, about productivity, because I do think that a lot of these ableist ideas come from this idealized notion of like how to be productive in your body. And if we can start dismantling that, um, it really changes things. Um, Peg B has a question. Um, Peg would like to know whether there are some shows and films that portray great characters with disabilities who are doing it right. Uh, thinking of Lisa Hammond in Vera, talk about snark. <laughs> I haven't seen Vera yet. I'm, I'm very interested now. Um, let's see. I really liked A Quiet Place a lot. Uh, they did a really good job of integrating the concept of interdependence with horror in a way that I really resonated with. Like this is a family with a deaf daughter who signs and they are literally alive in the dystopian hell that they are living in because they know how to speak ASL. They would not survive without it. And I think there's something really beautiful in developing that familial tie of language that just allows them all to survive. Um, it also means that disability isn't the big bad, which I appreciate. Run is a horror movie that came out last year, which has a wheelchair-using actress in it. It is about parental caregiver abuse, and it's a psychological horror movie. And it is one of the best depictions of ableism that I have ever seen in a film. Um, it truly is horror. Uh, I was disturbed, but also really excited because there were moments like wheeling frantically across the street only to get caught in a curb cut. Um, <laughs> So I really recommend Run because it does actually get what horror should look like from a disability perspective. 
not what able people think horror will look like in a disability context. That's super interesting. Um, so an anonymous attendee has a question um, and they are asking um, who your intended audience is and why, and what historical impact do you hope to make? So the audience I'm looking for is both disabled people and non-disabled people. Uh, disabled people, I wrote this specifically for other deafblind women because I wanted them to see the experience in print. And I have actually done that. That has been really powerful for me. I've been hearing from other blind women who've said that my growing up experiences resonated with them. And they had a lot of similar experiences and it really helped them to know that they weren't alone. And then there's the non-disabled people who I really hope just sit down and listen. I have spent an enormous amount of time in the last 10 years having people ask me questions and that's my job. My job is as an educator. But what I'm hoping is that non-disabled people actually sit down, read the book and listen and come up with new questions because it's time to get past one-on-one we need to actually be having 201 conversations about disability. And I think that that's sort of what I'm hoping the, the historical impact is, um, is that if there's one thing I can do with this book, it's to create a dialogue that, she, that shifts the tent. Yeah, I'm hoping that we can move just a little bit further past what's it like to be blind or deaf to how do we make changes? Yeah, I love that. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, um, Elsa, about, um, I know that you've done some consulting uh, on accessibility software, and I was wondering if you could talk about that and where you see that going and how, is it getting better? What does it even mean to get better? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think for us to get better, developers are going to have to expand their notion of blindness. One of the major things that I talk about in the book is that we have these monoliths of disability and people think that to be blind, you have to be totally blind and to be deaf, you have to be totally deaf. To be a wheelchair user, you can never stand up. And none of that is true. <laughs> um, and specifically for people who are developing software, if you think that blind people are only completely blind and you're developing software, you're missing out on the fact that there are deafblind people who cannot use your audio inputs. You are forgetting that there are some blind people who are using their eyes and would really like to read their phone, but they can't zoom in enough because you haven't laid out your, your mobile site to actually make it work that way. So I think it's about re-educating people working in tech to reimagine what disability looks like. Um, and that comes with a healthy dose of curiosity because I see a lot of people working in sort of development of new accessible technologies out of fear or out of essentially cure narratives. They wanna fix it. Mm -hmm. And what, what I think people actually need to be doing is asking the question of how do we come to you now in the body that you're already in? And that's a much more curious question and it's not operating out of who's 
going to sue us. It's operating out of how can we make it better, which I think just makes everybody a lot happier. Yeah, I. it's interesting because what you're saying, it sounds like um, you're talking about identities on a continuum, which I think is something that we're used to hearing in other contexts too. And that this is that we are sort of stuck in this idea of like, you are disabled or you're not. There's no like middle ground where you're a little disabled in one way and maybe a lot more in another way. And it seems like that's a big part of what you're trying to get at here. It is. And especially because I think people don't think about the fact that you can be multiply disabled. Yes. Like being deaf blind is the, the sort of cornerstone of that. I am both deaf and blind. I also have ADHD and PTSD. <laughs> Uh, my brain would really like it if it could just dump a ball pit out on the floor, release the ferrets, and they could have a party. <laughs> Sometimes that is my brain. <laughs> um, it's real cute, and trust me, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do think that that's a big part of it is that, that there is that idea that you can have one kind of thing that is a disability and it doesn't fit in with all these other parts of your body or your identity. Um, well, uh, to, uh, wrap up, I wanted to ask you, um, a final question about, um, having a guide dog and what that is like, are you, um, interested in talking about that? I, I'm so, sure. I mean, you talk about, um, you know, a lot of different, um, you know, a assistive devices in the book that you use and kind of what it means to be, um, to have your body modified by these devices. And you talk about your dog as an assistive device. And I wondered if you could just unpack that, like talk about what it's like to have that kind of a relationship with a non-human animal. Well, I used to, so I had a guide dog for about a year and a half, uh, and I miss him a lot. His name was Pax. Um, very good boy. I think you met him. I did. That was partly why I wanted to ask you about him. He was really delightful. He was a delightful, overexcited Labrador. And um, I really miss working with him. He was a good dog. And one of the things that you have to do when you have a guide dog is you have to give up your autonomy. Fundamentally, you have to say, okay, well, this year and a half old Labrador with more energy than five toddlers combined is going to guide me around New York City. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be able to say, well, I can't see very well, but, but the dog can. Great. And that takes a lot of trust, but it also honestly is an act of bravery because you put a harness on the dog every day and you're the one making decisions anymore. You are the one saying, I will follow the dog. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot like social dancing. That's actually one of the things my trainers said. I, I used to do, I do a lot of social dancing. They're like, you're really good at the following bit. And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty good follow and tango too. <laughs> um, but, it, but it's true. Like you learn how to follow using the hand, the harness in the same way that you learn to follow a lead. So it's all about the tension in the handle. It's all about knowing how quickly the dog is moving and if you need to speed up or slow down. Every piece of that is, it's a physical relationship with the dog that is about movement. And I think I, it's a really unique experience. I don't know that there are many other experiences quite like it. It's not replicable. And the reason why it's not replicable is also because even if you were a sighted 
person following a guide dog for the experience meeting one, it's not every single day. You don't get the relationship of learning the quirks. One quirks that I learned was that Pax was really into people. He loved people. This is a dog that I basically would take off harness conventions and be like, okay, get the zoomies out, like all the faces, because otherwise he couldn't work. Mm-hmm. And I, I basically learned to know where my dog was based on how close he was to my leg. Um, <laughs> and if he wasn't very close, I knew he was trying to slide across the floor or fall on escape, which he once did at the nebulas. He got up while I was in the middle of a panel and just fucked off and started <laughs> greeting people in the audience. And I had to go retrieve him from William Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So yeah, it's, it's interesting because this is a big theme in your book about kind of losing autonomy and gaining autonomy and how these assistive devices kind of, you know, put you in a liminal state where you're like autonomous, but also dependent. Um, And maybe to finish up, you could talk a little bit about that. It's, it's funny that you mentioned liminal space because that's in the dedication. Um, I dedicated the book to deaf blind women everywhere who live in liminal space because that's what we do. Deafblind women are constantly at odds with the world that we live in. We can't hear, we can't see. Sometimes we're in a space where we can hear some and see some in different degrees. And that means that we don't fit into the categories that people have developed for us. And it's true in terms of the spaces that we move in. We are perfectly capable and yet we also need some assistance. That's another form of liminality. And we exist in a society and yet we also don't. People don't see us, they don't want us there. And so I think sometimes that we are a little bit like ghosts. We're haunting the world because it's not entirely ours and we scare people. <laughs> but we also get to be here because of our world too. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that is a great place to end. Um, Thank you so much, folks, for coming. Um, Definitely buy this book and buy lots of other stuff from Elliott Bay Books. Um, Always support your bookstore as well as your writer. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for the interview, Annalie. This was great. Yeah, it was super awesome. Elsa Hunison is the author of Being Seen, One Deaf-Blind Woman's Fight to End Ableism. She had this conversation with author Annalie Newitz via the Seattle Public Library and the Elliott Bay Book Company on November 4th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org slash speakers. While you're there, you can subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.